Pastor Xavier Reese and the grace that comes with grace. Don't confuse and think that grace is a license to sin. It isn't. For Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? Perish the thought, God forbid. But just as we buy pencils with erasers on them, we don't buy it because we want to use the eraser. It just comes with the pencil, and when we make mistakes, we turn it over and use it. Grace is a divine eraser. When we make mistakes, flip it over, confess it, get out of the way, and keep writing. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. If you've done much flying, you quickly discover the class system. Those on the top rung of life get to fly first class. Now, there are those who qualify for business class, but what happens if you don't have the money or the clout to travel in luxury? You get jammed in with everybody else. Well, today, Pastor Xavier reminds us that those who are in Christ Jesus don't ever have to worry about being treated like second-class citizens. Let's listen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. The message is entitled, The Goodness of God. Paul the Apostle continues to speak well of God the Father for the wealth that he has given to the believer in Christ Jesus by his grace. As Paul is speaking here, well of the Father for all he has done in Christ, from verse 3 to 14, there is a very clear distinction and division ascribed to each of the persons of the Godhead. Verse 3 through 6, the Father. He's the source. Verses 7 through 12, the Son is the channel. And verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit is the agent. And so now Paul praises God the Father for three more things that he has done in Christ. In verses 7 through 10. Let me read our passage. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him." Paul praises God the Father for three more things regarding what he has done in Christ. First, Paul praises God the Father for redemption, verse 7. Secondly, Paul praises God the Father for illumination, verses 8 and 9. And then thirdly, Paul praises God the Father for his revelation, verse 10. Let's begin here in verse 7. Paul praises God the Father for redemption. Notice first the concept behind redemption is that of ransoming. The person in whom redemption is made available, notice again, it's in him, Jesus Christ. There is no other. He is the key to the epistle. He's the person God honors. He's the person God has chosen. There is no discussing it. There is no other option. People say we're very narrow-minded. I want to be as, as open-minded as God allows me to be. But I cannot go beyond the revelation of God, what God has declared to be absolute truth. The word redemption is a very descriptive 
word, and it's made up of two words. The first one is apo, which means off or away or to depart. And the second one, lutron, which means to loosen, literally to destroy or dissolve with a redemptive price, with the idea of setting one free. There are various forms of this word throughout the New Testament that are used to identify that regarding the believer. Now, the compound word redemption means ransom in full with liberation procured by the payment of ransom. Someone kidnap your son. They call you up. I want X number of dollars. You're going to ransom your son. You're not going to buy your son. He's your son. You're going to ransom him. You're going to pay the amount that is required to have him redeemed back to you. You go to a pawn shop and you pawn something. You have a set period of time to redeem it because it's yours. Once that time runs out, then it's open for purchase by anybody else. You redeem it, everybody else gets to buy it. The indication being that redemption here regarding God and man is due to the fact that we belong to him originally. But because of the fall, there came a break. The redemption of man is presented in Scripture from the fact of a slave market. Paul the Apostle tells the Corinthians, For you are bought... With the prize, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20. The word that Paul uses there is the word agorazo, from the word agora. You go to Israel, you go to the Middle East, and they're going to show you archaeological digs of the marketplace, the agora. And you walk through the mini malls. You have one little niche here. The guy sold pots, and this guy over here sold lanterns, everything. And, and you know, no different than today. The agora. The public town square where one buys from it. We have been bought from the slave market of sin with a price paid by Jesus Christ. Second Peter 2.1 says that some have denied that Jesus bought them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul says to the Galatians. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3.13. Now, the word Paul uses there is the same word, but he has a new prefix, ex agorazo. Ek, out from, agorazo, the market. So the idea is of buying a slave in view of his freedom and his improved opportunity. This is the picture that is painted in the New Testament. We were slaves of sin in the slave market of sin, and Jesus bought us to improve our opportunity. Paul says, Christ has redeemed those who were under the law that they might receive the adoption of sons, Galatians 4, 5, and we touched upon that last week. Now, people went down to the marketplace to buy slaves for their household duties and everything. But no one in the Roman world went down to buy a slave out of the agora, ex agorazo, out for their own opportunity to make them sons. Now, we do find certain instances that happened after years that they were slaves, but never any Roman went down to buy a slave out of the market to make him a son. God did. 
His love is different. Christ has brought us out from the slave market of sin by giving himself a ransom for, listen, many. Why many? Because not all will accept and believe that. We know he died for all. He died for the world. But not all will receive. The word redemption in verse 7 here of our text, in its context, refers to God buying us back to himself in order to experience freedom from sin here and now. Here and now. A reality, a fact. The word is also used in the sense of the ultimate glorification when Jesus comes for us in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So this is a good illustration of, of not using the regular definition of a word at the back of Strong's universally for all the places where the word appears. The word redemption, where we're seeing it in verse 7, speaks of the redemption for here and now. But in verse 14, it's speaking about the redemption when Jesus comes back for his church. So the context will always have an impact on the meaning of the word. Now, Matthew says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom, Lutron, for many, Matthew 20, 28, for many, those who call upon his name. Many call, few chosen. We read that in the scriptures over and over again. And yet we know when, they, when someone chooses, God is not unfair. When someone rejects, we know it's not because God is hindering them, but because there's a choice being exercised. Now, notice, secondly, that the token of redemption was his blood, which speaks of death. The principle was established by God when he atoned for the sins of Adam and Eve when they fell in the garden. In Genesis 3.21, God killed an innocent animal and clothed their nakedness. There you have the principle. From there on, all you see is blood, the way to come to God. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt was due to blood. As the blood was put on the doorpost, the lentil of the house... And then the angel of death went through Egypt, and when he saw the blood, he literally leaped over the house to not kill the firstborn. It was the blood that kept him from striking the firstborn. Israel was literally bought out of the slave market of Egypt by the Passover sacrifice, a type of Jesus Christ in Exodus 12, 13. Now the practice of blood atonement for sin was the basis for the law also. Years after, as they left the Exodus, listen to Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Now, whenever you come across the word atonement, and you find that Leviticus 17, 11, whenever you come across the word atonement in the Hebrew, the Old Testament, it is kofar. It was like an IOU. It was only a covering, not a total forgiveness. It was an IOU of the true payment to come. When you come across the word atonement in the Greek in the New Testament, just break it up. At one men, forgiven. You go down to the store and you're, they know your dad. You go down there and you buy some milk, some cereal, and you just sign. It's an IOU. At the end of the week, your dad comes in on Friday and says, Hey, Mac, what's my bill? He pays it cash. That IOU looks forward to the payment of Friday. That's as good as the payment because it's based on the word of someone that they trust. And so the same with atonement. So keep that in mind, the distinction between the promise and the fulfillment. 
You know that the author to the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.22 says that apart from the sharing of blood, there's no remission of sin, right? If you didn't come with blood, you didn't approach God. You had nothing to do with him. He had nothing to do with you. And again, the Old Testament is limited to Israel unless you proselyte it in. Now, you remember the cousin of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist? He knew that he was the fulfillment, even as he looked at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. Now, he understood what that meant. He meant someone's going to die. That blood is going to be the token of access to God. There's going to be fellowship. But someone has to die. 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus was our propitiation. But not for us alone, but for the whole world. And the word propitiation goes back to Hebrew and the Hebrew language of that which appeased and satisfied the demands of God. For the whole world. Not just for a few, for the whole world. You remember when Isaac asked his father as they were on that journey over to Moriah? And God says, offer me your son, your only son. And Isaac, with the wood on his back, says, Father, you know, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham looked to his son and says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice in Genesis 22. God will provide himself a sacrifice. How interesting. You know the story. There was a substitute of a ram, and Isaac was allowed to live. For three days in the mind of Abraham, his son Isaac was dead. For three days. And yet before he went up in worship, he told his servants, I and the lad will go yonder in worship, and we will return. Romans and Hebrews tells us that he knew that if God need be, he'd raise him from the dead. Why? Because God says it was going to be through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Isaac, that this, the promised seed would come. After God gave this, the substitute, you do not read of Abraham and Isaac coming down the mountain. Now, we know they did, but it's not recorded. The next time you see Isaac is when he's waiting for his bride to come to him, and he's gathered to her. How interesting. The last time we saw Jesus was when he ascended up on the Mount of Olives. The next time we'll see him is when he comes to us and we'll be gathered to him. Coincidence? I don't think so. Abraham's the type of God the father. Isaac's the type of son. Eliezer, who is mentioned without name, is the type of the Holy Spirit who seeks out the bride. God provided his own son 2,000 years later on the very same mount, Mount Moriah, all the way to the top, Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull. God was true to his promise by providing his son. The precious blood of Jesus Christ, not an animal, the payment in full. Now notice thirdly, still in verse 7, that the uh, efficiency of redemption is marked by the forgiveness of sins. This is important. The word forgiveness comes from the word which means to send from oneself or to send away. A release from past sins and their penalty. So he hits redemption with the word of separating and bringing to a close. But now for the forgiveness, also the same kind of understanding. Peter told the house of Cornelius, to him, meaning Christ, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive, here's the word again, remission of sins. Remission is the same word here as forgiveness. That's a fact. That's a promise. There's no doubt about that. 
In John 20, remember Jesus says, whoever sins you, re you retain, they retain. Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. That's not the authority for priests to forgive sin. That's the authority of anybody who is born again to proclaim to somebody, if you repent of your sins, God will forgive you. And if you don't repent of your sins, then your sins are upon you and you'll be judged for them. You have the authority to declare that and so do I. How? By the decision people make. It's real simple. You see, the weight of sin and unforgiveness of sin is destructive to mankind. I trust that we've all experienced guilt, shame, and what it does to us, how it takes away our peace, how it takes away our joy for life. Guilt and shame for what has been done becomes a burden throughout people's lives not allowing them to live freely and fully. You see, God has made us very uniquely that our minds cannot handle guilt, unconfessed sin. And it bothers us. It brings destructiveness to us. It allows juices in our body to come out and tear down our body, our mind, our nervous system. We know that more so today, medically. Everybody knows exactly what they've done. No one can get away from that. Paul is saying here, when God comes into your life by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness, and that guilt is released, and I'm able to live peaceably. I'm able to enjoy my life. I'm able to have hope and vision. Never deceiving myself that I didn't do it, but that God has cleansed me and regarding his perspective, it never happened. It's put away. That's an amazing promise. The promise is beautifully illustrated by the various visual metaphors that are given to us about sin in the scriptures. We are told that our sins are cast as far as east and the west in Psalm 103, 12. Thank God he didn't say north and south, huh? You'd run into it. You keep going west, you never run into east. You go east, you never run into west. But the Bible also says that he has buried our sins in the depths of the sea in Micah 7.19. Now, in the depths of the sea, we can't reach it. Even today, the deepest part. In other words, no one can reach them. And you might just add there, he put a sign there, no fishing. They're gone. Thirty, he says, he remembers them no more, Jeremiah 31, 34. I will never be held accountable for one of my sins. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand that when I know that I can enjoy life, I can live to the fullest, I can live abundantly? If I don't know that, it bothers me. And that's the problem with lost man. He's got to live with his mistakes and his decisions and his choices and his consequences without the grace of God. Waiting only the judgment of God, Romans chapter 2. Pretty vivid pictures of what happens to our sins in the scriptures. Pretty comforting. Notice, fourthly, the degree of God's redemptive forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. Don't miss this. In proportion to God's grace, which is immutable, and neither increases or decreases. 
Therefore, it is inexhaustible. The inexhaustible riches of Christ. As you know, the word riches is a key word to the epistle. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 18, it says the riches of his glory. In chapter 2, verse 4, the riches of his mercy. In chapter 2, verse 7, the exceeding riches of his grace. In chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, again, he says, the riches of his glory. He's wealthy. He's rich. And you're his son, his daughter, regarding the payment of your sins. When Jesus said at the cross, it is finished, he declared the putting away of all sins by his death once and for all, even as Hebrews tells us that. No one sin was left out. No one more sacrifice needed to be given. No one person was excluded. There's the grace of God. There's the love of God. I think the parable of the prodigal son is a perfect illustration of Luke 15, where the son said, Father, give me my inheritance, and he went out and blew it with partying and with women and everything else, and then he was there fighting with the pigs for food, and he came to himself. He says, you know, what am I doing? There's servants in my father's house that eat better than this. I know what I will do. I will rise up and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not fit to be called your son. The father kept looking always, waiting for the son. He saw a son afar off. The father ran to him, embraced him, gave him the ring on the finger, put sandals, put a robe, said, kill the fattest calf. He says, my son was lost, dead. Now he's found. There's the picture of God. Waiting. Everything has been done. He's waiting to shower you with his riches. If you will recognize your lostness. He made a decision. He came to himself and he says, what in the world am I doing? You have to come to the same conclusion. By God's grace. Paul tells the Romans, but God be thank that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness, Romans 6, 17, and 18. So now we're slaves of righteousness. That's good. We used to be slaves of sin. Now we're slaves of righteousness by choice. We used to be slaves of sin by, by uh, a compulsive desire, by a slavery. Now we serve righteousness by a choice, by an ability given to us. Do you understand that God's forgiveness is in proportion to his unlimited grace. If you don't, then you're walking around in condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says that there, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Let me distinguish between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is Satan rubbing your nose in a sin that has been forgiven at the cross. You've confessed it, you've repented from it, you've abandoned it. Don't let Satan rub your nose in it. Conviction is when you're in a sin and God wants you to confess it and abandon it. There's a distinction. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If I've confessed it and abandoned it, then it's forgiven. Where sin abounds, much more does grace abound, Paul says in Romans 5.20. Now don't confuse and think that grace is a license to sin. It isn't. Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? Perish the thought, God forbid. How should we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? We don't. But just as we buy pencils with erasers on them, we don't buy it because we want to use the eraser. It just comes with the pencil. And when we make mistakes, we turn it over and use it. Any of you ever buy a pencil just to see how fast you can wear out the eraser? 
Okay. Grace is a divine eraser. When we make mistakes, flip it over, confess it, get out of the way, and keep writing. Pastor Xavier Reese and the incredible gift of God's unending grace, a gift that's available to all who surrender to Christ Jesus. Well, be sure and tune in next time for the conclusion of this study. Now, if you won't be able to make it back, for only $4, you can pick up a copy of this message on CD. And be sure and pass this study on to someone in your church or Bible study. So once again, the title to ask for is The Goodness of God, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for telling us the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This information helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. Are you feeling a little lost and discouraged? Well, there is hope and help. Learn what it is when you tune into the next edition of Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 